reading from Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, good morning. I'm not Pastor Mike in case just you weren't sure, you know, if you got up here and like, wow, like super fast diet. No aging cream, shrunk, five inches shorter. You know, it's, I'm a son, don't worry. Okay, um, so uh, before we begin, I want to uh, just let you know while we're reading this passage, um, you know, it's pretty obvious that these verses contain the gospel. There's nothing big here, there's nothing nuanced, it's not something like, whoa, I really hadn't thought about that before. And I want to exhort all of you, in case any of you have ever been like me, and I hope you haven't, but in case you've ever seen something like this and thought, wow, I already know this. Why are we listening to this when we could be looking at things that we haven't already heard? But before we really begin, I want to look at the broader context. Uh, we can see at the beginning of uh, chapter 1, verse 15, Paul's entering into, well, really, in verse 3, he's entering into a prayer. In verse 15, He's entering into gratitude. He's saying, this is why I'm thankful. I'm thankful that this is who you are in Christ. And then where we picked up in the scripture reading in chapter 2, he's, he's reminding the Ephesians of where they were. And he's not saying anything that he thinks that the Ephesians aren't going to know. Uh, Paul is pretty confident that the saints at Ephesus already know the gospel. So this isn't about introducing something new to people. Instead, this is supposed to be an encouragement. I think it is uh, doing exactly what Paul says he's going to do in chapter 4, um, 29, when he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul is trying to build up the saints. He's trying to give them grace in the preaching and the reading and the hearing of his word. Um, so today we don't want to be looking for something new, something novel, something unexplored. And if we are, then you're not going to hear it from me. Instead, what we want to do is realize that we are going to be seeing the gospel and we should be encouraged by this. We should be built up. We should expect to hear the grace of God come through his gospel. Uh, now, before we begin, let's pray. Dear Father, uh, thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you've done for us, all the mercies that you give us uh, that we know to give thanks for and all the ones that uh, we don't know to give thanks for. Uh, thank you for your gospel truths. Thank you for uh, the way that uh, not just that you have redeemed us, but that you continually remind us of your redemption. I ask that today um, your servant would not be speaking, but that you would be speaking, and that I would decrease, that you may increase. Um, I ask that if I say anything today that is not of you, um, then it would fall on deaf ears, or it would not be remembered. Um, 
but that through this only you would be glorified and we would come to know you and appreciate you more. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, now before we begin in earnest, I do want to let you know I was a little bit sneaky uh, with the scripture selection. So we will be looking at Ephesians 2, but we won't be looking at it exclusively. Well, uh, the Lord Bill's office will be looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and then later to the Colossians. Uh, and like Mr. Vale, I do not trust myself to use PowerPoint. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> That means that we're going to be had to do this the old-fashioned way, and I would really encourage you to be following along either with your own Bibles or with the Bibles in the pew, um, and I'll try to make that as easy as I can. Um, but I, I want to encourage you to do this because the purpose of a sermon is for you to hear God's Word, to know God's Word, and I'm trying to help you along with this, but I don't care if you forget everything I say, as long as you remember that it's something that God is saying in the Scripture. So uh, I really encourage you to be looking at, at what God is saying in the Scripture. Um, and you're going to get way more out of the sermon if you do. Uh, and also, just as a cautionary note, like I don't know that I will say everything that I ought to say and be following along. And if I say something that Scripture is clearly not saying, don't listen to me. <laughs> this, is, this is for both of our good. All right, so we're going to be getting in Ephesians 2, which is page 976 in your pew Bibles. Uh, and we're just going to, for the very first part, just start working through uh, what was read for us. So, verse 1, we see, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. What does it mean by following the course of the world? Well, we can think of a course as like a racetrack, a path. Uh, someone's walking along the rhythms. The path has already been set down. But set down by who? Are they following the course of God? Or are they doing what they're designed to do? Well, no, they're following the course of the world. So he's saying, to walk in sin is to walk along a different path than you're supposed to be walking. And that's where you, saints, used to be walking. And what were you doing? You weren't just walking by yourself. He says, you were following the prince of the power of the air. Which is really fun to say in a mic because it makes a sound. But the prince of the power... I didn't mean to do that. But the prince of the power of the air uh, is an idiom... Uh, or a metaphor for Satan or the devil. So he's saying you're walking along the rhythm of the world and you're following the devil, uh, who is the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Now, according to uh, D.A. Carson, uh, the Greeks tend to use an idiom, sons of something, not to be like, oh, they were literally born from disobedience. It rather means that's what their nature is. So someone who is a son of disobedience means that by nature they are disobedient. Their default thoughts Words, actions are by nature disobedient. That is what they automatically go to without thinking, without feeling. They are by nature disobedient people. So that's who you were, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. These passions, flesh, desires of the body and mind essentially mean we are not following something that has been set down for us. We're not following the law of God. We're not following the will of God. Instead, what we what were we doing? What were the saints doing? They were doing whatever they wanted. So uh, the desires of the body could be gluttony or sexual appetite, but the desires of the mind could be anything like malice or deceit, deception. Uh, any sin, really, saying, is what we were consumed by. That is what we followed. It says, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
So Paul isn't noting that the Ephesians used to belong to something that was some weird cult that disobeyed God. No, they were like every single person who lives outside of the grace of God. They were by nature wrathful. They were by nature disobedient. They did what they wanted, and by doing so, they were following the devil. And so this is a very bleak picture. And here, just in this bleak picture, in these these next two words, we have the gospel. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with God. Christ. Uh, this is just amazing that God would do this. But look, look here in verse 5. It says, even while we were dead in our trespasses. And I'd be saying, well, that's clearly metaphorical. Like, he doesn't actually mean we're, we're dead. I mean, we even notice we're dead. He, he probably means, like, we were, we were almost dead in our trespasses. Or we were going to die. But Paul doesn't say, even when we were about to die because we were in sin, He does not say it was as if we were dead in our trespasses or we were as good as dead in our trespasses. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, just like he opened it in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So what is it? Uh, Paul, I would notice if I was dead. I'm not. Uh, So what's going on here? You think, well, maybe maybe we'll get to that if we keep reading. So verse verse 6 says, um, that God raised us up with him, that is with Christ, he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You say, okay, sure, God's promising that he's going to raise us up with him. But not quite, because what's the tense of the verbs here? It doesn't say, and God will raise us up with him. It doesn't say, and he will seat us with him in the heavenly places. It says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is past tense. And we know that Paul knows what's going on with the tenses because in verse 7 he says, so that, and this is a promise, so that in the coming ages, in the future, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us and Christ Jesus. And we say, Paul, what's going on here? First you said that we were actually literally dead, and now you're saying that we've already been raised and we're already seated in the heavenly places? This doesn't make any sense. So there are three questions that we want to be looking at today. The first is, what does it mean that we were dead in our trespasses? Second, uh, what does it mean that we were raised or have been raised and are seated with Christ in the heavenly places? And what does that mean for the way we live our lives? Uh, and it's important to know the context of who Paul is talking to. Um, the church of Ephesus is one of uh, the best churches that we find in the New Testament um, and we, we can see that Paul's not explaining exactly what these mean. He's not explaining what it means to be dead in the trespasses. He's not explaining what it means to be raised in Christ because he assumes that they already know this is a reminder, not an exploration of something new, uh, as we mentioned earlier. And this, I think, is because um, we can see in Acts 19, uh, verses 8 through 10, that it seems very likely that Paul was, if not in Ephesus, was at least near the church of Ephesus for two consecutive years. So he's been teaching them a lot, and in all likelihood, Paul has already told them what all of this means, and so he's assuming that they're going to remember. Um, now, I don't know about you, maybe all of you are like, why is John even talking about this? But I needed to be reminded. Um, so we are going to look at a place where Paul is talking to people that he has not yet met. Uh, that's the letter to the Romans. Uh, when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, he had not yet 
met the people in Rome. He hadn't gone to Rome yet. It was more of an introductory letter. Um, and so he spells out a lot of the details of the gospel because he's sending it to them as a proof of, of who he is and his apostle. He knows the gospel very well. Um, so we're going to look a little bit more where he starts to answer these questions for us. Uh, so turn with me, if you will, to uh, Romans 5. It's on page 942 in your Bibles. Um, you could turn to page 942 in other Bibles, but I don't know what you'll get. It could be an adventure. Um, but so we're going to uh, start out looking at uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, and remember, the first question that we want to ask is, how were we dead in our trespasses? So Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, we think, one man, what? Right, Adam. Adam was the first man to sin. So just as sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here again, we see Paul at the very last part is saying, death came to all men because all sinned. And we want to say, but Paul, not all people are dead. We are like literally a living testament of that. So what's going on? It's in all likelihood, Paul is not saying that all people have physically died, although physical death is a result of sin. He is saying that everyone's spirit as a result of sin is dead. There is no life in their soul because of sin. And so this is in all likelihood what Paul is saying when he says that we were dead in our trespasses, not that uh, we're physically dead when we're sinning, but that when we live in sin, or rather <laughs> when we sin for not living, uh, then we are actually literally truly dead in one sense. And so we look and say, well, okay, so I, I can see in this part how sin came into the world through Adam, but how does that mean that all people had to be dead spiritually until the grace of God? Doesn't that just mean that Adam had to be dead in sin? And to answer that uh, as explicitly as we can, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 22, uh, just the first part, where Paul says, For as in Adam all die. In Adam all die. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Because Adam sinned. But how is it that we all die because Adam sinned? Because surely we want to think every person is their own isolated individual. What they do, they are responsible for. What I say, I'm responsible for. But I'm not responsible for what somebody else says, nor is somebody else responsible for what I say or what I do. So how is it that Adam sinned and then death spreads to all men, and sin spreads to all men. Isn't that a choice that each person uh, has to make? And a lot of this, I propose, comes from this idea that we are completely separate individuals, that perhaps we're related biologically. We say spiritually, you know, my spirit has nothing in common with, with my father or uh, with my hypothetical son. Um, it, to put it a little bit better, um, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis because he's just way smarter, way more eloquent than I am. Uh, and he says in his book, Mere Christianity, but human beings are not separate. They look separate because you see them walking around separately. But then we are so made that we can only see the present moment. If we could see the past, then of course it would look different. For there was a time when every man was a part of his mother, and earlier still, part of his father as well. And when they were part of their grandparents, 
if you could see humanity spread out in time, it would not look like a lot of separate things dotted about. It would look like one single growing thing, rather like a very complicated tree. Every individual would appear connected with every other. You might want to say, well, that's certainly an exciting philosophical uh, idea to consider, uh, but just because a Christian who is a very fancy Englishman happens to say it doesn't mean that it's true. Uh, but I think that scripture does suggest this idea that people are connected, uh, as Lewis is suggesting. So to illustrate that, um, I'm going to look at a few passages. First is Exodus 34, um, looking at verses 6 and 7. So that's on page 74 in the Pew Bible. So the context is Israel has just fled from Egypt. Uh, They're now at Mount Sinai, and God is establishing his covenant with Israel. So we're picking up uh, chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So what is God saying? Well, he's saying that he is very steadfast, he is generous, he is merciful, but he's not going, in this covenantal relationship, he's not going to pardon some people. And rather than just punishing someone who sins in a certain way, he is going to visit them to their grandsons and to their great-grandsons. And for us, that sounds a little bit shocking. How can that be fair? Some of us don't even know the names of our great-grandfathers, let alone what they did that might deserve punishment. And I've heard people talk about how this idea just seems to be unjust. But we know that since God is by nature just and that our very conception of justice comes from him, then if we think that something he says or promises to do is unjust, then we clearly are messing something up. And I found in studying this that the more we think of ourselves as individuals and isolated from our generations, then the more likely we are to see this as unjust. But if we see people as being connected, as C.S. Lewis was suggesting, then it would not be an injustice to condemn something that is in, part one, is in one part bad and continues to be so in its line. You might be saying, well, maybe this is true, but I, I need a little bit more evidence that people are connected in this way. So I'm going to have you turn to the opposite side of the Bible, um, and we're going to look at uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, We're going to look at chapter 7, which is on page 1004 in your pew Bibles. Um, So the context of this is uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about Melchizedek, who was a priest that Abraham um, paid a tithe to. Now, Melchizedek is an extremely interesting and complex character, and if you want to know everything there is to know about him, at any time, feel free to talk to Pastor Jared. All right, um, so what we need to know right now is that Abraham paid the tithe to him, um, and the priestly order and God's covenantal relationship did not come about uh, for about 500 more years. Um, so if we pick up in chapter 7, verse 4, we see the author says, See how great this man, that is Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, 
who was the priestly order, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who was Abraham's great-grandson, that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, we might not use this language anymore, but the author of Hebrews makes it clear that in some way, even if we might not understand it, Levi was in Abraham. And somehow, by being in Abraham, Levi was paying tithes just as Abraham paid tithes. We don't want to say that uh, like Levi was curled up in a ball like actually inside Abraham. He wasn't physically in there. But in some non-physical, metaphysical, or spiritual, it doesn't matter what word we use, in some way, Levi was in Abraham. And I don't expect any of us to know how this works. Um, I don't really know how this works, but there are a lot of things that I don't know how they work, and I still believe that they work. Uh, for instance, gravity is often, uh, well, it's, it's widely accepted uh, by everyone, but physicists still aren't exactly sure why it is that gravity works or how gravity works. They simply know that it works in the way it does. And so in the same way here, it seems that scripture is suggesting an important truth that we can be in our ancestors, and we may not know how it works, but we should believe that it works. Well, why am I talking about this? Okay, it's because, remember, when we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul says, in Adam all die. So just like Levi was in Abraham, we all, in the same way, are in Adam. Or at least we were at one point. We all found our being in Adam, and Adam sinned, brought death into the world. And so it was no longer our choice to make but we became, by nature, children of wrath and sons of disobedience. This is very abstract. Um, so I've uh, found an example that is helpful for me, and I hope it could be helpful for you. In order to do this, however, we are going to have to use our imaginations. Um, there was a time a few years ago when I was eating with my family, and uh, we were talking about dragons. I don't remember why. And my nephew Daniel, who was at that, at that time three, said, well, dragons aren't real. My brother Joshua says, well, maybe we can use our imagination. And the three-year-old looked at him, indignant, and said, adults don't have imaginations. <laughs> for some of it, it's true. Um, but hopefully, at least for the next few minutes, we can prove the three-year-old wrong and try to use our imaginations. Uh, so here's a, a way of thinking that, that at least really helps me. Okay, so first, just think of a nice meadow. Now imagine that there is an apple tree, but this is not an ordinary apple tree. This is, and it must be in fairy tale land, it's a poison apple tree because poison apples have to come from somewhere. I, I told you how to use your imagination. But just, just imagine there's a poison apple tree. Now the poison comes from the root or, and, and the trunk and it spreads to all the branches. And then the branches themselves produce the poisoned apples. And so we can look and say, hmm, are the branches themselves the first parts of the tree to make poison? Well, no, it's the trunk. Are the branches still producing 
poisonous apples? Yes. Do they still have poison or, in a sense, death running through them? Yes. So are the branches still part of a poison apple tree? Yes. Are they something we shouldn't like if they were real? Yes. So in the same way, we can think Adam made the first sin. Sin starts in Adam and the world, yet it spreads to all of man. So in this case, we are the branches and Adam is the trunk. That is perhaps is where it starts. That is where the sin starts. That's where death starts coursing through our veins. And we end up producing, in a sense, poisonous fruit. And, and you may say, well, it's, it's not the branch's fault that it's from the tree. And you can argue about that. I'm sure it's anyone's fault that the branch is from the tree. But the fact of the matter is the branch is connected to the tree. And so the branch is just as poisonous as the trunk of the tree which has the poison. So in that way, we are in Adam, and we are dead, because Adam, the trunk, is dead, whereas poison. And so from him flows everything, and in this case, it is death. And so from Adam into us flows death and this tendency to sin. And so we are all in Adam, and we all sin, and so we all die. So now we have a little more of an understanding of what Paul means by uh, we're all dead in our trespasses. But then what does he mean uh, when he says that we have been raised with Christ and that we're seated with him in the heavenly places? Uh, how, how does that factor into anything? We can see a little bit more when we look at chapter 5, verse 18, still in Romans, um, page 942. And Paul says, Therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, or you can read it, the trespass of one led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness or the righteousness of one, leads to justification and life for all men. So even though he's not using names here, Paul is saying, look, just as sin and death came into the world through Adam, and then everyone was in Adam, so Christ came into the world, and through his life of righteousness, he brings justification and life for all. So go back to the image of that poison apple tree and just zoom out a little bit. Now we see two trees. One is the poison apple tree. One is just a regular apple tree. It's not a regular apple tree. It's springing with life. It is what an apple tree ought to be. It is every goodness that an apple tree has. And essentially what happens here is that if we are the branches, we have been cut off from the poison apple tree and grafted in to the regular apple tree, such that then we no longer are making poison when we are getting our life source from the trunk, we're no longer getting it from Adam, we're getting it from Christ. And so this is what Paul means when he says that we now have life in Christ. But he also says that we had justification. What does that mean? What does justification mean? Uh, to justify is a legal term, and it means to declare righteous. So in this sense, it is saying that if we were in uh, court, if there was a judgment, then God would say, you are righteous. Not because he looks at us and sees any merit of our own, but because when he looks at us, since we are no longer in Adam, but now in Christ, he doesn't see us, he sees Christ, and Christ is righteous. And so he says of us, you are righteous because Christ is righteous. Just as if we looked uh, at the apple tree that had a poisonous branch in it, we would no longer say, well, now the tree is ruined. No, we would say, now that branch, though it is not yet as good as it could be, is part of a good tree and is therefore good. It will produce good fruit. It is good. And so this is what's happened. 
I'm going to say, well, okay, we understand a little bit more, but how does that mean that we were raised with Christ? We'll just keep going. So verse 19 of chapter 5, Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, which is what we just saw. Through Adam they're made sinners, and through Christ we are made righteous. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abandoned all the more. Which is simply to say, when God's law was made known, when people knew without a shadow of a doubt what was right and wrong, that just increased in them desire to do wrong. But the more people sinned, the more opportunity God had for grace. So 21, Paul says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then here, picking up in chapter 6, Paul is no longer speaking as Paul for this, for this next verse. Um, rather, he's saying, here is a hypothetical objection that you might make when you hear that, well, the more sin we have, the more grace there is. So, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, well, since more sin produces more grace, does that mean we should sin as much as we can so that there's lots of grace? Paul says, by no means. In other words, no, that's ridiculous. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And here's what's really important. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's saying to be in Christ Jesus, we are baptized into him. And we, we are in Christ, then that includes his death. We have had Christ's death just like he died. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, and ordered that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul's saying, we are in Christ. All that he does is what we do. Christ died, so we died. But Christ was raised, so we were raised. Which makes sense of what he's saying in Ephesians 2. He says, we were raised with Christ, in Christ, and here he explains how, because we're baptized into him. We're now associated with him the way we used to be associated with Adam. So since he was raised, we've been raised. Paul continues, in case we're not sure what's going on. Verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and we have, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, that self that was in Adam, was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So Paul is saying, Christ has risen and we have risen with him. And so it follows that if we can rise with him just as we die with him, then if Christ ascends and is seated at the heavenly places, then in a very real sense, so are we. Which is not to say that physically right now we are in the heavenly places, but to say spiritually, if we are in Christ, we are in the heavenly places with him. This is who we are. And if we don't think this way, that doesn't mean that scripture is wrong. That means that we need to pray and ask God to help us in the way that we perceive our lives. We should be thinking of ourselves as people who have been raised from the dead and who are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so uh, now we want, to, I'm sorry, but before we go on, 
um, I want to look back at the passage from 1 Corinthians uh, 15 because I was a little bit sneaky again and only read you half the verse. Um, so this is 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So that's wonderful, which brings up the third question. What does this mean for the way we live our lives? Now, I have a few considerations, uh, but the first I want to address is, in case there are any people here who believe that they are not in Christ. Um, I don't say this because I want you to feel bad uh, or because I don't like you. Um, I say this because this is what Paul is saying. This is what God is saying through Paul. Uh, if you're not in Christ, then you are in Adam. Like When you picture trees, you never see branches just kind of waddling about on their own. That's, that's not what branches do. They have to be connected to something, which means that you are either connected to poison or you're connected to life. Um, and I'm going to illustrate what's going to happen uh, if you are in Adam. It's not just that you are now dead and your trespasses. Uh, there's more to it. So if you would turn with me to John 15. Uh, which is on page 901 of your pew Bibles. John 15, I'm going to start out um, in verse 5, although reading all this would be very helpful. Um, Jesus himself says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And so again, I say this not because there's any hate in here, but because this is to what all Christians were once condemned to, and but for the grace of God, we still would be. And I want you to earnestly consider, if you believe that you are right now in Adam, this is what Jesus says is the fate of those branches who remain in Adam, of those people who do not abide in Christ. But if you know that you have not been saved, if you know that you have this continual struggle with sin, that you are by nature disobedient and a child of wrath, then I want you to listen to a few other words of Jesus. And he says in Matthew 11, 28, let's see if I can actually get there. Yep, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, which is page 816. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you've not taken this yoke of Christ, then I would encourage you to do so. If you want to know more about it, um, then I would encourage you to uh, talk to the pastors of this church, either Pastor Mike or Pastor Jared, um, because there is no greater promise than this. Now, for those of us who are in Christ and know ourselves to be in Christ, uh, there are still a few ways that this should change the way we live, or should at least inform the way we live. Perhaps we already live this way. I don't. Um, so, first, we have to consider ourselves dead to sin. So we'll just look back there where we left off in Romans 6, uh, page 943. Uh, we're looking at uh, 
chapter 6, verse 10 here. And Paul says, for the death he, that is Christ, for the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, with the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's interesting. Why is Paul saying that we have to consider ourselves dead to sin? I mean, we're clearly already dead to sin. He just said that. We've been crucified in Christ, and so we are dead to sin. So why is he saying you have to consider yourselves dead to sin? I'm sure all of us have been in an occasion where we have formed a certain habit, a certain way of thinking. We become accustomed to a sort of rhythm, and then we happen to be in a context where that rhythm didn't make sense, but we still follow the rhythm anyway. So uh, there are a lot of examples of this, but there was one time um, when this woman, let's, let's uh, call her Kelly, uh, was an employee for JCPenney's. Um, she wasn't high up in the management. She was, um, she was a, a salesperson, a retail worker. And then one day, uh, she went to a fast food restaurant. And a fast food person towed up her order and said, that'll be six seventy-seven. And she um, automatically responded without thinking, great, do you already have a Penny's Rewards card or would you like to get one now? <laughs> and it's not because she was thinking, I bet I can get this fast food worker a Penny's Reward card. It's because that was already ingrained in the way she lived her life. She thought automatically, I hear a price, I offered the pennies reward card. And in the same way, and it's, it's much more serious than this, even if we aren't in different contexts, even, and you could say that this retail worker was no longer in a context where being a retail worker mattered. And in the same sense, we are dead to sin. Our sinful tendencies don't matter in the sense. They don't apply to us. They shouldn't apply to us. But sometimes we still act as though they do. Sometimes we still repeat, would you like a penny's reward card? Except it's not saying something that's kind and trying to get a penny's reward card and said it's something sinful. We think something sinful. We say something sinful. We do something sinful. And we do it again and again and again. And Paul's saying, look, you have to consider yourselves dead to sin. When you're tempted to sin, don't think, should I do this or not? Think, it doesn't matter if I want to do it. I'm dead to it. I can't want to do it. That's not who I am anymore. And Paul recognizes that sometimes we know who we are, but we forget who we are in Christ. And so he wants to remind the saints, remember who you are in Christ. You have to consider yourselves, I say daily, hourly, minutely, consider yourselves dead to sin. John Owen, a, a Puritan scholar, a theologian, once pictured uh, the process of fighting sin like this. He said, imagine that, you know, you have two knights in medieval times and they are fighting each other. A knight is not simply going to try to parry all the blows and escape. He's going to try to win. And he's going to launch every attack that he knows how so that he no longer has to be in battle. And he says, if a mist comes and there's fog, sometimes when sin comes, and then we don't sense it anymore. We think, aha, I am free from sin. I don't even have to think about being dead to sin anymore. I can just go live my life the way I want. He says, no, if there are two knights fighting and there's a fog, the one knight doesn't go, huh, I bet the other one died. He goes, he could be anywhere. I have to be on constant watch for wherever he is. So Paul's saying we have to be vigilant. Consider yourselves dead to sin and watch for when it tries to make you alive to it. All right, uh, the second application that we have is who are we alive to? It says we're dead to sin, 
Um, and sometimes we tend to think, okay, we're no longer sinners. That means we can now just be happy. We can now live life the way we want. Yes. N- not quite. L- look at those two verses again. Uh, 610. Paul says, for the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Yes, you are no longer alive to sin, but you are not now your own. You are in Christ. You belong to God. And so we have to daily consider ourselves, I am here to do the will of God. And that involves prayer. How should I do the will of God? Uh, Father, correct me when I don't do your will. But we need to consciously daily think, I'm dead to sin and alive to God. What does that mean for how I live this day? Um, The third thing to consider is um, the confidence that we can have in being in Christ. Um, Now, there could be times when we're worried of, I'm in Christ, but does that mean that I still have to fear the fire that Jesus talks about? Um, and 15, does that mean that I had to fear anything? And Paul addresses this a little bit later uh, in Romans 8, starting in verse 31. And it's actually fortuitously printed out uh, on the cover of the bulletin today. And Paul says, uh, this is on page 944, 831, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is saying, we recognize that there will be many, many trials that happen for the Christian. But does that mean that we cannot be sure in our salvation, and our justification, and relationship with God, and being in Christ? 37, he says, no, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As he says in Ephesians 2, as part that we only uh, briefly looked at, um, we'll just start again at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us and Christ Jesus. There are trials to come, but God has also promised that he would show us the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us, being in Christ Jesus. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, that is things that we have done, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is, we should walk in God's good works. And so the third element to consider, or the fourth, is how is it that we are going to walk in God's good works? Why is Paul saying this to the Ephesians? And we can find this just by following along this passage, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 11 in Ephesians, um, so very end of page 976. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, that is, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. That is who we all were at one point, separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Saying here, the people who used to belong to God's covenant, Israel, and the people who are now in God's covenant, that is the new covenant, so Gentiles and Jews, saying now there's a wall that is broken down. You no longer need to hate each other. You were one in Christ Jesus. 14, he says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who, who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. So what is Paul saying? There's a lot here that he's saying that I'm not going to be able to cover. Um, but here's something very broad. Paul is saying, you who were once hostile to each other, whether you were Gentiles and Gentiles or Gentiles and Jews, or Jews and Jews, you who were once hostile should now be united in Christ. Because what's happening, you are being made by the Spirit into the temple of the living God. Is something that is built on the foundation, it says, of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We are being built into something that Jesus is the cornerstone of. And so he's saying, have peace among each other. There, there should be no reason for hostility, for derision, for contempt among each other, for we are all being made into the same thing. Uh, in a different chapter, or rather a different letter, Paul says that we are all members of the same body, and that body is of Christ. We are all the same in Christ. We're all the branches. We need have no hostility among each other. And for those of us, which again is probably all of us, who sometimes find ourselves wanting to be hostile toward other people who are in the church, whether it's Christ First Church or simply the universal church, we need to remember this passage. This is not what we're being designed to do. We are being worked through by the Spirit to make, here, 22, in him 
you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God. That's what we're being made by the Spirit. And we need to put away uh, all thoughts that would disrupt that peace, that would make us a divided house. Now, the last thing that we wanted to consider uh, is Colossians uh, chapter 3. And we just want to look here. Um, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. And this is just because Paul here is summarizing pretty much everything we've been talking about. And it's just a surprise. He does an amazing job. Um, so, Colossians chapter 3, this is page 984. Starting in verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, and remember, we have, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And remember, in a way, spiritually, we too are seated there. We need to seek the things where we are spiritually. He said, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Remember what he's saying in the beginning when we walked in those trespasses, when we were dead in sin? He said, we follow the course of the world. We followed Satan. He said, no, 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 no. Stop thinking about that. Set your mind on the things that are above. Verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, seeing in other language that you have died to sin. Do not lie, um, sorry, I've already read that. Uh, verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. In other words, Paul is saying it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter any other status outside of the gospel. He says, but Christ is all and in all. And this is just such a beautiful idea. That not only are we in Christ, but Christ and his spirit are in us. Verse 12, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, notes he doesn't say if one has a complaint against another, make sure they pay. He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were once called in one body. I'm sorry, you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another and all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give me thanks to God, the Father, through him. So my question I have for you here is this. Have you been living as those who are redeemed? 
It's another way of asking this. Do you have any regular thoughts or actions that you cannot do, as Paul says here in verse 17, in the name of the Lord Jesus? If your answer is yes, then you're probably just being honest with yourself because we all have those regular rhythms of life, those thoughts or actions or speech that we know that in good conscience we cannot do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saying, well, what, what are we supposed to do now? Like Paul says, here's what we had to be to put on the new self. Here's how we have to be in order to live as those who are redeemed, and we know that we don't. And one answer is we will know... We will never fully live like this on this earth. Uh, there is a process of sanctification, of becoming more holy uh, by the grace of the Spirit. Uh, but we will never become perfect and be able to read and say, I do all of this. I never sin, and I always do everything right. That's not going to happen right now. But that does not mean that there are no degrees of improvement. We can be more like this or less like this. And say, well, how can we do this? And quite frankly, I have no answer for any tricks of this is how we do it. We can only do this on reliance on the Spirit. But I do know this. If these 17 verses describe who we want to be, if they describe how we want to live as redeemed people and how we believe redeemed people ought to live, then we should be praying through this constantly. Uh, pray through it every day. Ask God that he will do these things for you. Uh, you know, just, I'll, I'll pick a verse. Uh, verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have not put off the old self with his practices. Uh, pray through it in this manner. Father, help me not to lie to other Christians or other people, seeing that you've helped me to put off the old self with its practices. Pray through this. I don't know that this will uh, make your life extremely better, but I can say that by praying through this or praying through other passages of Scripture, those are some of the only times that I know that I am praying for what I ought to be praying for. So if that's ever something you struggle with, I would encourage you to do just this. Um, and I can think of no better way than by starting right now. So if you'll bow your heads with me, let's pray. Father, again, we come before you and we thank you for who you are, who we are in Christ, that Christ is in us and our spirit is in us, and that we have been adopted as your sons. Um, help us to live as those who are redeemed, who have, who have died to sin, who have been raised. Help us to understand what it means that we are no longer dead in our trespasses, but that we were dead. And help us to understand what it means that we have been raised in Christ, that in him we have been seated in the heavenly places. Now, Father, I said you help us to pray through this passage. Father, we thank you that we have been raised with Christ. Now, please help us to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, and we know that you said that, in a sense, we are seated at your right hand. Help us to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For we know that we have died and that our life is hidden with Christ in you, Father. For when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we know that you have promised that we also will appear with him in glory. And we thank you for that. Help us now to put to death what is, whatever is earthly in us, our sexual immorality, our impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which we know is idolatry. For we know that on account of these, your wrath is coming. And Father, we know that in these, we too once walked in that we were living in them and that we were dead in them. But now, Father, help us to part with them and to put them all away. Help us to put away our anger, our wrath, our malice, our slander and obscene talk from our mouths. Do not let us lie to one another. 
seeing that you have helped us to put off the old self with its practices and have helped us to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after your own image. Father, we give thanks to you that there is not Greek or Jew, that there is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. We thank you that here in your church, Christ is all and in all. Father, help us then to put on as your chosen ones, as those who are holy and beloved by you. Help us to put on compassion hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Help us to bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, give us the will and the courage to forgive each other as you have forgiven us, so that we might also forgive. And above all things, we ask that you help us to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and that you would let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to which indeed we have been called in one body, and please make us unfeignedly thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and being willing to be taught and admonished by one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts for you, God. And Father, help us that whatever we do, in word or deed, that we would do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to you, the Father, through him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.